This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. You know how this goes, Donald. You've done it yourself. But you're struggling. Reports confirm that he's losing big time in the money game. The Trump campaign squandered its $200 million cash advantage over Joe Biden. They spent all your money. The campaign has already had to cancel events this week. They're getting rich, but you're getting ripped off. So an enormous share of the money was just sunk into the act of raising the money. Falling behind in the polls. Margin here, Joe Biden consistently you see ahead. A 10-point lead, a double-digit lead for Joe Biden. Joe Biden with a lead over President Trump. All that money for nothing. If you've been anywhere near cable news or social media in the last few months, you've probably seen an ad by the Lincoln Project. The group, comprised primarily of Republicans who are very vocal in their opposition of President Donald Trump, has raised and spent gobs of money criticizing not just the president, but his Republican allies in Congress for enabling what they say is his abuse of power and his incompetence. Joining us on Political Theater is Kurt Bardella, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, a former Republican staffer for representatives Daryl Issa, Brian Bilbray, and Senator Olympia Stowe. And he's also joined the ranks of the industry the president loves to hate, the media. He's a contributor to USA Today, MSNBC, and he's even the founder of his own newsletter about country music, Morning Hangover. Kurt, welcome to Political Theater. Well, thanks for having me on. <laughs> sure. Hey, um, let's let's quickly uh, let, let's talk about this LA Times op-ed before we get into some of the Lincoln Project um, ads because I think it speaks to a lot of what the Lincoln Project folks, you know, Steve Schmidt, Reed Galen, George Conway, uh, like talk, which is that um, the warning signs are there for the Republican Party, and you you state that they were there a little over twenty five years ago in California. Uh, when the Republican Party was dominant at the state level, uh, Pete Wilson was a juggernaut, you know, sort of governor. Uh, and then all of a sudden things changed. So let's talk about your op-ed in the LA Times today. Yeah, and I'll share with you. You know, I came up as a Southern California guy. Uh, that's where I got my first rub with politics at the local and state level. So California's always kind of been a, a near and dear place to my heart, and I've always followed the politics there. And it's funny because when you talk about California today, you think about it as the heart of the resistance and, you know, where, where the Democratic Party is strongest. And it's given us, obviously, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and, and now, uh, you know, Senator and, and Vice Presidential nominees, uh, you know, Kamala Harris. And the reality, though, is 25 years ago, it was a strong Republican state. It had a strong Republican executive, had Republicans in, in the key statewide offices like Secretary of State, Attorney General. Uh, they even had the majority in the state legislature. And even in Congress, they gave us powerful, powerful figures like Bill Thomas, the former chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Jerry Lewis, the Appropriations Committee chairman. Uh, you know, California and the Republican Party have been intertwined for so long. And it's, it's startling to me when you look at the condition of the California Republican Party today. It's a de facto third party. It's behind the Democrats and declined states and independents in voter registration. They don't have a single person in statewide office. Half the time, they can even find anybody that's truly credible to run for these positions. And then you look at the congressional level. First, what happened in 2018, some bellwether Republican districts that have been Republican forever 
finally fell to the Democrats. And then even right now, looking at my former boss, Daryl Issa, running in the California 50th Congressional District, the district that I grew up in and, and you know, encompasses Escondido, where I went to high school, was the first congressional district I worked in. That's what brought me to Washington when Brian Bilbrey was a congressman there. And Daryl is running neck and neck with, with a candidate, uh, Umar Camp Najjar, who has no business being within arm's reach of this, of this race. It's a, it's a Republican plus 12 district. And the fact that it's neck and neck within the error margin, according to three polls that have come out, tells you the condition of the Republican Party in California is on life support. And how that happened was in part how they embraced extreme conservative rhetoric targeting Hispanics and Latinos. And when I look at that, and then I see this Republican Party today nationally, the build the wall Republican Party, the lock the borders Republican Party, the inflammatory rhetoric that they use. And I think to myself, geez, we see how this play ends in California. Why would the Republicans at the national level repeat this? I, I want to get into one of these ads real quickly, but before that, I mean, you, you mentioned that some people are kind of, they're, they're playing roles, right? Doing what they think that they need to do just to sort of wait it out. Do you, do you, do you hear back from any of your, your former colleagues, your, your former staffers and so forth who just say like, I know this is BS, but I have to do this in order to, to, to get, you know, uh, elected or stay, you know, have a job or get my consulting fees paid. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, and, and I'm just waiting until Trump loses. Almost everybody that I know socially and that I've continued to, to maintain friendships with, uh, despite my own political transformation, uh, they all think that this is crazy town. They all cannot wait for the day that Donald Trump goes away so they can stop having to talk and defend this lunatic. Uh, it's the most ironic thing is the people who actually work in Republican politics, by and large, majority of them are not. I doubt that they're voting for Donald Trump, quite honest with you, from a lot of people that I've talked to. Uh, you know, it, but it tells you just how Washington is structured in that and, and why it's so hard and uncommon generally for people to make that change like I did going from, from a Republican to Democrat because you, you are who you affiliate with. That is your professional identity. That is your, your personal identity. That is your social circle. Everything that's a part of your life is, is tied to the team that you play for. And so often, I think here in Washington and on Capitol Hill, you know, it's, it's almost like sports. We, we see it as we got to beat the other guy. We got to win the day. It's a contest, a competition. And, and uh, as horrible as that sounds, I guess, to people who aren't as familiar with Washington, but that, that's really what it feels like when you're there. And so that's why it's so hard to, to, to change that or speak out against it, because for everybody else, this is their livelihood. Now, I'm very fortunate that when I made the political change that I did, I, I had built a, a completely different world for myself in country music. We talked about it when you intro me, this country music uh, newsletter that I never thought would go anywhere. I just started as a hobby, but it, but it really took off and became a revenue stream for me. So I could afford to walk away from my political identity because my livelihood wasn't exclusively tied to being a Republican anymore. Almost everybody else is in a completely different situation. I mean, I would have killed to have had a Lincoln project to go to when I made my change. Unfortunately, they hadn't come around yet. It uh, would have been a lot easier for me, that's for sure. So um, let's let's talk about the, the first ad I want to talk about is called Parasite. This ad is, uh, it, 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 it's great because I've, I've been watching a lot of horror movies. I'm not sure why. Could it have something to do with this year? <laughs> uh, and, I, and I noticed, I mean, it, it has a sort of a horror movie beginning before talking yeah. about uh, Lindsey Graham. Some animals can't survive unless they take 
They don't establish natural equilibriums. Some animals are parasitic. And every time I turn around, I'm being asked about Donald Trump. He's crazy. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. He's unfit for office. And when their host is taken from them, they seek a new one. I am all in. Keep it up, Donald. Everything he said was true. Parasites don't care if they feed off a good host. I love him to death. Or an evil one. They only have one purpose, to feed. I think that the interesting thing about the Lincoln Project is that this isn't just a, um, a seeking to sort of influence or counter some of the president's presence on Twitter uh, and and the way that he can get, you know, earned media, to use a, an industry term, uh, from from outlets and so forth. But you're, you're going after Republicans who have enabled him, uh, who who have like done this turnaround, and this ad I think is kind of devastating because well, one, it's it's kind of funny, you know, like the 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 tropes of the parasite and 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 yeah. so forth, and then the the transition to Graham, who you know we we have on tape. I remember being at a dinner where he said that my party has gone batshit crazy, and then two years later, you know, he's campaigning for him, shepherding his Supreme Court picks, talking about how great he is, um, waited, you know, a, a little while, you know, a, a couple days after John McCain, his, his best friend, you know, died to just keep right on the, the sort of the Trump train, even though Trump has leveled criticism after criticism after criticism at McCain, even after the guy is dead. So uh, talk about some of these other uh, p- folks that you're you're going after. And have you re- have you guys gotten pushback on it, saying like, "Hey, Susan Collins is okay. Lindsey Graham's an adult. We're just waiting." Have, have you are you getting pushback on the criticism of these folks? Oh my gosh, the, the, the consulting class is, is, go, is, is going apeshit uh, over Link Project's efforts to go after whether it's Lindsey Graham in South Carolina and a very competitive race with Jamie Harrison, whether it's in Maine and Susan Collins, who seems to be underwater up there. And I know Maine pretty well, having worked for Olympia Snow back in the day. Um, and then you look even like Arizona uh, and what Mark Kelly's doing against Mark Sally, uh, Alaska and, and, and Dan Sullivan and Mark Gross and that race there. You know, uh, Al Gross, you know, there is. Um, the story of this period of time, I think when we, when we finally get beyond it and Donald Trump isn't the focal point of everything we talk about, read about, and tweet about, uh, once that dies down, I think that the story of this period of time is about the Republicans who stood by and let this happen. D- Donald Trump is, 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 is who we thought he was. Uh, he's kind of you know, P.T. Barnum and Vince McMahon rolled into a politician and, and, and he conducts himself like, like what he was, a celebrity apprentice TV host. And the show happens to be the United States of America. That's not surprising, really. Um, of all the things that have happened, how Trump is acting is not at all, to me, shocking. What is, is how through and through over the last four years now, whether it's from Paul Ryan, whether it's Lindsey Graham, whether it's the way that Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz have shifted, it's the Republicans who let all of this happen. Donald Trump's like a child. And like anyone who's a parent knows, your child's going to test the boundaries. And they're going to do things. And it's up to the parents to, to put in that discipline, to let them know what lines you can't cross. Well, the Republicans didn't do that for Donald Trump. Every time Donald Trump crossed the line, they just kind of sat there and went either, oh, well, he's just being Trump. Oh, I don't respond to Twitter. Oh, he's going to do what he's going to do. We're powerless. We can't do anything to stop him. All because they were afraid that Donald Trump would tweet an angry nickname at them, uh, calling him small or little or stupid or whatever, much like a child would do, by the way. Uh, and, and, and they've all just kind of surrendered the party. And, and in the process, unfortunately, I think a lot of Americans have gotten hurt by that. 
And so for the Lincoln Project, you know, it's not just about Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, isn't the cause of, of the infection that, that, that's metastasized for the Republican Party. He's a symptom of it. And the people who have enabled this to happen, who knowingly do what they know is against their own conscience, they need to be held accountable too. Because if Donald Trump happens to lose in November and, and, and goes away, the remnants of this period of time are still there. They're still in the party. They're still going to be fighting for power. Uh, just as we saw in California, the smaller the Republican Party got in California, the more the hardliners fought to stay in power and monopolize things like primaries and, and the overall messaging and direction of the party. Well, that's going to happen at the national level, too. And so when we talk about South Carolina or, or, or Georgia or Maine or Iowa and Joni Ernst, you, it, it, it's a reminder that the fight that we're in is bigger than and will last longer than just dispensing of Donald Trump. And, you know, I mean, several people uh, in, in, affiliated with the project, you know, people like Steve Schmidt or, or Stuart Stevens or Reed Galen, who wrote a, an, an op-ed for, for Roll Call um, uh, talking, about the, talking about the group and, and their beliefs, or Rick Wilson, have said, like, yes, we are willing to lose the Senate. We're willing to lose the presidency, the Senate, uh, and to keep, you know, House Republicans in the minority in order for the Republic to survive. Um, and it's it's kind of you know it, it to me it it is sort of staggering because it it's it's the thing that that perhaps people didn't maybe they didn't realize how how much of a chance that Trump had in 2016 and so sure. they they weren't making these kind of statements um and and I'm not I'm not criticizing any of those people uh, I, I'm just saying that there there wasn't as vocal an opposition and a stance to say like yes we're willing to lose we're willing to be out of power if that you know, can actually serve a greater good. And so it's this kind of extraordinary moment. <laughs> yeah, this is the first presidential election, at least in my lifetime, where it's not about the typical partisan politics. This isn't about uh, whether you have a, a, a liberal or progressive governing vision. This isn't about what you feel about pro-life or capital punishment or the war on drugs or, or the war on terror or some of the, the themes that we have seen, uh, you know, over the last 25, 30 years in presidential politics. Uh, this is, this seems to be at least from our perspective uh, about like, it's about saving the Republic. And, you know, we always hear every, every election, like, oh, this is the most election, important election cycle of your lifetime. Uh, but this time it's actually true. Uh, when you look at just whether it's the coronavirus or the fact that right now the you know the western part of our, our country is literally on fire, uh, you know there are some very dramatic things happening right now to this country that are having a very real human tangible cost. I think the coronavirus is so important and different because it's really the first time that everybody is impacted by this. Whether you acknowledge that it's real or not, you still. When you do your everyday activities, whether you're going to the store, whether you're figuring out school for kids, daycare, work, it's something that you have to think about. And it's one of the everyday things that we generally take for granted, whether it's, like you said, going out to eat, going to the grocery store, just the everyday errands that we do that we don't give a second thought to. When those things are disrupted, something very dramatic is happening in our society, and that supersedes and transcends whether you're an R or a D, an I, a Green Party, a Libertarian, all of the things that we, we generally talk about and fight about all day long, this is much bigger than that. And that's why I think that this election, I think, is being talked about and framed very differently because we've never, we've never gone through this before. 
And I, I, I also I want to get to another one of the ads, which I thought was pretty striking. I mean, they're I mean, one I mean, whoever is doing the production values is, is uh, I mean, they are like you know small movies. These aren't like the you know your typical. I mean, there's some there is some old grainy scary music kind of you know like the usual tropes of ads, but one of the more uh, effective ones I think is is the one where you talk about Trump's wall and and the imagery. I mean, it's again we're in an uh, an audio uh, uh, medium right. <laughs> now, but the the imagery of the wall being stretching basically the, the length of the southern border that that the president's talked about building so much is is just lined with coffins and to show how you know how much this uh, impacts us you know this ad came out a couple weeks ago this, the toll the death toll was one hundred seventy five thousand you know now we're approaching two hundred thousand right. And we don't really seem to have much of an end in sight. I mean, you know, we got the announcement that the Big Ten was going to start playing football again. Um, you know, I, I mean, I just I I shiver to think of like what kind of super spreader events there are. I mean, like the colleges are already becoming the next locus of it. Um, yeah. But this, I mean, the is there is there a danger of overdoing it with some of this imagery just because it's so? I mean. It's over the top, but it's also reality. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I think you know, uh, both of us have seen our fair share of, of campaign ads over the years, and 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 there's always been there's almost a consistency and a formula to how how you see them during election time. Uh, and I think part of the goal for the Lincoln Project is to do something that really does get your attention and get you to stop in your tracks. And you know, we live in a time now where you're competing with so many things that t- take people's attentions away. Uh, you know what from social media to television to to, to, to anything on the internet streaming uh, to get 30 seconds of someone's attention uh, is a very tough thing to do and so I think that for us uh, in a world where because we are bombarded with so much all the time and you do run the risk of things being overexposed and people kind of tuning it out and being numb to these things and hell that's I know how you and I both feel when we get to this time of the year at this point you know our goal is to come up with creative that that cuts through that and and, and I think that uh, part of the success of the Lincoln Project that's been so unique, I think that you're seeing, too, other entities, campaigns, political action efforts try to, to duplicate some of that a little bit and, and be more creative and be more outside the box because uh, that's the only way that you can message. I mean, we can't do some of the things that we no- normally can do. We aren't congregating in campaign field offices throughout the country anymore, doing phone banking and, and doing knocking on doors and, and, and mail drops and all the traditional tactics that we've used for so long. Uh, so the best medium that we have is creating content that can be shared digitally and, and experienced digitally. And I think when you're talking about just the effort to persuade, which is really what, what, what these things are all about, it's, it's persuading. Uh, just like whether you're watching a TV ad, a TV show, a film, uh, you're, you're, no one's going to change your mind or, or interest you in something if, from the, if, if the, what you're watching doesn't capture your imagination in any way at all. Um, and, and I think that's the lens in which we're trying to approach this. We're lucky because unlike most campaigns, we don't have the same structure, the same kind of internal bureaucracy. We're able to move very quickly, very nimbly. Something can be on TV that Trump says, and then in three hours, we can have something already up on that. Um, and I think that's uh, the, the tactical advantage that the Link Project has had um, is the ability to turn things around so quickly and, and not be trapped in our own system. Uh, to prevent us from getting something out there and trying to make an impact and amplify something. 
Well, Kurt, uh, welcome back to DC. I hope everything, everybody's safe in California, your family, your in-laws, your uh, friends, uh, and we look forward to uh, some of your next uh, missives. Uh, they're, uh, if, if nothing else, they are entertaining. <laughs> uh, and, and also, they, I mean, the imagery, as, as we've talked about, is quite powerful. Um, so thank you uh, for, for taking some time to talk to us today on Political Theater. Well, I'm glad we could do this. Thanks so much.